Hi, everybody. Jamie here. Uh, okay. So, via a series of unfortunate events, I uh, fucked up the sound on my end this week. Uh, just fucked it, fucked it right up. It's a long, boring, really upsetting story. But uh, the good news is that I remembered to hit record on the Zoom backup about half an hour into our sesh. So what that means is uh, I'm going to sound like shit for the first uh, half hour or so. And Andy had to cut out a lot of what I said. Uh, but after that, it improves uh, exponentially. And the bonus, fun fact, is uh, is crystal clear. So, you know, uh, <laughs> I guess just bear with us. I'm really sorry. Um, and, you know, if you want to listen to uh, nearly an hour, I think, of uh, not fucked up sound <laughs> in the bonus, you can subscribe. I don't know if I'm making a great case for myself here, but um, that's that's just that's just what's going on. So, uh, yeah, patreon.com slash the Antifada. Uh, you can subscribe and get this and all the good bonus content or uh yeah just keep on keep on listening all right thanks for your understanding guys um and yeah hope you enjoy this episode despite the uh technical problems hardly art hardly starving hardly art hardly garbage yeah hey everybody um I'm here with an in-person guest, first in-person guest we've had in quite a long time, uh, so that's exciting. I'm here with Clark Filio. Hello. And, Hello. Uh, we're here at the Woodbine space. Jamie's unfortunately not here. Why aren't you here, Jamie? Explain uh, to everyone. Well, I just had a little minor surgery yesterday on my lady parts to, <laughs> my lady, to uh, take out some, uh, some of my eggs. So I, the procedure was successful. Uh, now I can combine my eggs in a jar with uh, Lennon's freeze-dried sperm uh -huh. and make a communist army. But uh, I'm a little sore because you know they went in with a needle through my uh, through my back walls. I think that's the technical term, and uh, <laughs> I'm feeling just a little bit bloated and in pain. But I. Um, good to go to do a podcast. If I have to leave in the middle, though, that's why. Well, Clark and I have both had that same procedure done, and we don't have any eggs anymore, so we <laughs> sympathize with you on that. Yeah, thanks, guys. You know, it's important to, to lay some eggs. At, at, at a certain point, yeah. there's a time in everyone's life when you have to lay those eggs, so I fucking did it. Now it's done. So we're going to talk uh, less about the medical arts today and more about the visual arts and the business surrounding the visual arts. And we have with us a painter, an organizer of art workers, and the producer of one of my favorite shows, How To With John Wilson, Clark Filio. Hey, nice to, nice to meet you guys. Nice to see you. Nice to see you, Andy. Nice thanks you thanks so much for having me on. Um, I feel, uh, I, I want to, I just want to say I'm, I'm one of the producers on how to, mm -hmm. I don't want to be the producer, you know, it's a, it's a big group effort. Um, and an organizer of art workers, uh, feels like a, like, I think that's an accurate, an accurate title actually, even though it's like, you're the organizer. I'm the single, the only one trying to, <laughs> yes, I'm the only one. No, but it's, it's, I'm really excited to, to get into this stuff and talk to you guys. Awesome. I really like that show. I gotta say, I watched the first season 
and was not expecting to be so so touched by it, you know? Like, I thought it was going to be, I'm like, oh, he worked on, what's it called, Thank You For You. Like, it's going to be, like, another funny, awkward show, but I wasn't expecting to also feel emotions, especially, like, while watching a guy, like, stretch his penis and stuff. Yeah, I, I think um, you know, a, lot of t- a lot of television tries to kind of manufacture these, like, emotional arcs and these emotional climaxes um, in, like, in, like, ways that we are all very, very used to. And I think a big a big part of how to was uh, just this this kind of like I- emotional storytelling, but in in just like a different different way. And I think a lot of, it blindsided a lot of people. And I think we got a lot of fans for that same reason. Yeah, especially in the new season, there is a lot of really interesting social stories that literally I never had heard about anywhere else. Like visiting that uh, that housing complex for convicted sex offenders. Oh yeah, um, I never heard about that place, and um, uh, if I had just read an article about it, it wouldn't have been as emotionally compelling as how that episode came out. So you do a lot of good work, besides being really funny and just reminding me of when I was nineteen, walking around New York <laughs> and making fun of things with my friends. Yeah, <laughs> uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, that's what everybody's going for on the show. So that's really that's really great to hear. Yeah, I want to ask uh, before we get into talking about the art world and the art business some more. How how does the show relate to that side of your life? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I would say in in a, in a few different ways, um, and the biggest one is just you know I've you know John's been a really close friend for a really long time, and I think you know both of us kind of were developing our respective creative practices at the same time. So you know, when I was kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to say and do with art, um, we were, you know, very much a part of like the same conversations and kind of responding to a lot of the same stuff. Like we'd, you know, kind of watch all the same movies and go to a lot of the same art shows and have a lot of the same friends sort of in a, in a larger creative community. And so I think that's, for me, this is just kind of like, in in one way it's it really is like the sort of culmination of a a lot of what before was just sort of like very like ponderous and casual like kind of stoned conversation just amongst friends and now it kind of like becomes this this big thing that we get to make uh and then otherwise i would say that my my, my, for my practice like i i have like kind of a secret research-based practice like not a lot of people think think of my work that way but like that's definitely how i make my work and and that's what I do for the show. I do research. So um, it, it does kind of fit nicely into like the way that I like, you know, try to find out about stuff that I think is interesting. So like, you know, I just like have a lot of tabs open on my computer like all the time. But and but like with your practice, you mean like your painting? Like the stuff yeah, yeah, my, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. That's what I mean. Like the studio practice. Um, the stone conversations you have with your friends can be uh, a thing. And uh, we're making art too. So good for us. Yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm very. I very much advocate for an expansive view of what art is, and I, you know, I would say, I would say, the podcast is definitely art. Scaffolding is art. Podcasts are art. Art is art. Oh my god! You heard it here first, folks. You get it? NFTs, though, they are not art. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, definitely not. No way. Who are you to say NFTs are not art? <laughs> yeah. Let the cat out of the bag. I wrote a bunch of NFT questions, but I feel like everyone's really sick of talking about them. So I'm going to try to keep them to a minimum for everybody's sake. Okay. Okay. Before we get to the NFTs and the Nazi apes and all that stuff, let's talk about your organizing with art workers. Um, And the first question I have is, what is an art worker? An arts worker. So um, 
There was a definition of what an arts worker is. Art organizer who does the Art Handlers Alliance came up with this definition, and it's anybody who touches a piece of art and gets paid for it. So that's if you're the artist who makes it, you're an arts worker. If you're uh, a dealer who's like handling it, you're like, well, maybe not the dealer, <laughs> but you know, if you're touching the art, then that makes you an arts worker. Just imagining a gallery owner just gingerly touching each piece yeah. of art to yeah. uh, make they sure probably they're a worker. Do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's but it's it's subjective. I think I think like you know there there is no fix. What I've also found out definitely in the in the practice of organizing is that there's no there's definitely no stable or fixed definition of that because like the economy around art is like also so strange like you have writers and you have uh, curators and you have like um all kinds of people who are like who are involved in 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 some space and sometimes like you'll meet somebody who like has a lot to say about art and a whole lot of opinions about it and is very involved in like an artistic community but is like not an artist or a dealer or a collector or a writer and they're just sort of like around and are they an arts worker i think they might be <laughs> um i think we've all known people like that so when i hear when I hear the term arts worker, I think of one, a lot of my friends who have been arts, art movers, um, which is basically just a moving, moving job, but you have to like really make sure you don't fuck up what you're moving. Yeah, white gloves. Normal. And then I had a friend who worked for a very famous artist, but I won't mention his name. <clears throat> um, who said Was that. Was it Da Vinci? She, <laughs> she created a, uh, a painting over the course of one day or one week or something. That later sold for like almost a million dollars, and she just made like a little over minimum wage for yeah. making it, yeah. like an hourly yes. minimum wage. That that's which it sounds like that's just the majority of art is produced by not the artist but by people who work for the artist. Yeah, I mean this is this is uh, this is like a question that kind of goes um, to um, not a question but just sort of like it, it, when you're when you're in this these conversations of, of of like trying to organize artists and arts workers, you run into that a lot. This sort of issue of like just the 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 very 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 high visibility of the most expensive art kind of eclipses most of what people kind of consider art and what people know to be art um, and it really does end up kind of steering the conversation a lot of times about what the art world should be doing or, or what um, you know what like what the what the configuration of the art world should look like um, and so for artist assistants who you know make their you know I know a lot of artist assistants um, who fabricate their their bosses work for them um, I know a lot of people who who really love their jobs doing that and it's like a really special thing they have like a very special relationship to their boss and they get a lot of support for their own practice from their boss um, and they get like hooked up benefits like uh, like those situations are out there and then there also are the other situations where it really is like a punch clock kind of situation like sweatshop sort of like you're in a big room with a bunch of other people and and there's a rotating door you know um i wouldn't say necessarily sweatshop but less a factory a factory yeah <laughs> yeah um, not the groovy kind not the cool kind i mean people might be on speed but not in a fun way and this and you know this is like um i think the first layer of the conversation is like what like you didn't even make it is it like your art and, and this kind of this this is definitely not up for debate anymore in the art world like it's a perfectly acceptable thing to have other people make your art and um you know it's just kind of part of life there that's not really on the table for like any kind of discourse about like you know what the art means or anything um strangely yeah right yeah that's i mean that so that in the the world of of kind of artists uh, oriented activism and in 
conversations that happen about trying to make the art world a better place to be. This is like one of the things that comes up all the time is these like outrageous secondary art market prices and, and how the artists don't see any of that money. And it's really interesting because it's such a common sense thing, right? Like in every other industry, like in, in if you like write a screenplay and that sells, like the writer gets money. If you're like a musician and like, you know, you get royalties every time the music is played. If, if you know, um, if, a, if a movie wants to use it, you get all this money. There's like all these like kind of like mechanisms in other industries where like artists c- kind of get paid over and over and over again when their when their mer- work like moves around um, uh, and you know and part of being in the art world as an artist like you really have this aspirational mentality kind of beat into you um, so everybody is kind of gunning for the auction house in a weird way like like this is ostensibly like your goal even if it's not like if you're trying to have a career as an artist that's what it means like moving up in the art world means that eventually like you're sort of hoping for your art to like sell for tons of money at auction and so because of that because you have that hope and because it's like very visible it becomes this like thing where everybody is like yeah like there should be residuals for the secondary art market and then the the initial kind of like pushback to that that uh you know dealers and collectors and the marketplaces like the secondary auction houses would say is that well you don't need that money because what happens is it's a good thing for you that your prices go up in the secondary market because then that raises your prices on the primary market right you can charge more for your new work if your if your old work is selling for tons and largely that is true that is largely true um so that is the single kind of re- like the re- really the biggest reason why there hasn't been serious mobilization by artists to change this system and 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 there are like there is like a like a like a like a law in California where like there's a there's a very like um rarely applied residual fee that the artist is supposed to make in very specific it, it, i don't know it gets very bureaucratic but then the other thing that i that i would also just add that as somebody who um has spent a lot of time talking with artists and trying to you know bring artists together to uh you know into in, into some kind of mode of organization to change stuff about the art world um i hear this so much from people that this is a really important thing that getting that residual thing getting residual payments on the secondary art market is really important to, to artists who will never be on the secondary art market either and this is the strange thing about it it really applies to so few people um and when you look at the scale of the participants in the art world it's like a disproportionate amount of interest goes into how how to achieve this or let's have conversations about it when it really only applies to like i don't know like a few hundred people like so it's 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 kind of one of these like weird political kind of like red herrings where like people want to talk about it and i I like talking to with artists it's like i'll always humor the conversation because i'm trying to get artists like involved in other conversations and if this is something that they care a lot about you know i think it's a good way to to kind of like crack open bigger ideas you're an artist yourself are you gunning to be sold at auction are you are you looking to be in museums like are you trying to enter this like big art business it's i mean it's strange yeah i actually i uh am really pleased to announce that i'm partnering with uh woodbine on the uh <laughs> on the uh, the ridgewood token um no 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 i i uh i i it that's that it's a weird it's a weird place to have goals um, in the art world because for most of an artist's career, they're they're really just kind of trying to get to the next thing, you know. Like um, the studio, uh, like uh, like I, I like every other artist, kind of exists with a degree of precarity where, like, at any given moment, it, it does feel like the practice could could end or or, or have to end because of um, you know whatever reasons. And, and it's kind of amazing to have an uh, to have a practice that that goes on for that at least goes on beyond art school. Like everybody else that I know from school, like really isn't 
making art anymore. I certainly don't want to be in auctions. Like that's not part of my vision for my future in, in that, like I'm coming from a place where like, I just don't want anybody to kind of be in auctions in a way. Like I sort of have a vision for a future in the art world where that is not a major factor. Um, but of course, you know, the other part of me is like, yes, of course I want my art to be in auctions because that would mean that I'd like made it, you know, and I want to make it. I do believe in museums. I believe, I believe in the museum show. I, I, I think museum shows are really good. Um, well, we definitely want to talk about maybe later in the episode, or maybe we should do it now. Like talk about what an ideal art world sure. would look like. Like I think most, you know, even people who are really critical of art, like me. I mean, I enjoy going to the Whitney and yeah, whatever. I like to see modern, at, at least even to just have something to sneer at. You know, it's fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Your, work out your sneering muscles. I guess we'll we'll talk in a second about like how museums function today as these like global parking lots of wealth um and that's not just museums it's the art world in general and how that relates to the nft phenomenon but maybe before we do that we can talk about like what your ideal art world would be like what would it mean to produce art and who would see it who would own it etc yeah um so i think like you know, there's a, a few different horizons here. Obviously, um, you know, as a as a as a political person, like imagining life after capitalism or, or whatever that looks like. There's that that I think is like um, kind of a, a a much bigger kind of like more Star Trekky conversation. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of stick to sort of like what I imagine I could maybe see in my in, in like the next twenty years or something. You know, what I could kind of <laughs> yeah. This is okay the, for the for the vision board. Well, okay. So earlier, uh, there, there's an idea that floats around um, in these political conversations about art. You'll often hear uh, some version of the phrase that the art world is nothing but a kind of barnacle on uh, finance, right? That this that there's like this giant, you know, the financialization of of every aspect of our of our life has created this, you know, uh, weird kind of like money vortex and the art world there's just a bunch of sort of well-dressed socialites who have like figured out a way to kind of like siphon off a little stream of that um to themselves by doing these weird things um and i you know i kind of have a view that um it's it's almost or i sort of i think it's more more productive to think of it as kind of the other way around that like art making is this like enormously massive thing that um everybody has a relationship to and that you know kind of finance in a way or sort of like capitalism in a way is is attached to it and is extract is extracting i don't know kind of like power and life from it um and so that's so you know i i advocate for a very broad um understanding of what art is and when I think about what the best art world could be, you know, it's it's a world where um, anybody who wants to make art can, and there's uh, democratic kind of like processes or, or democratic ways of of determining like you know uh, what we like and, and and what kind of conversations we want to have as creative people, um, and that those conversations would be as inclusive as possible. And I think you know like that's uh, that's for me like the biggest kind of like bummer about art making today is that it's like there's um yeah there's there's not a lot of ways in you know everybody's kind of like at every step of the way you're sort of pushed out of it and i think that's unhealthy for for the creative life of mankind or it sounds like you're strung along a lot for the purpose of exploiting your labor 
Yeah. Yeah, that happens a lot too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a good example. Like, Is This It is a great album. We all a perfect album, but perfect probably album. a yeah. million. Sorry. Sorry, I said great. I meant perfect. Mm-hmm. There's probably like a million like perfect albums like that that we'll never hear because there just wasn't the PR that went into it. And it yes. didn't get thrown onto MTV2 immediately, which is where I saw it for the first time, or SNL. So in like a more ideal art world, so like, yeah, everybody can produce art maybe they can go to school for art for free and like get all the materials to make it for free and like do whatever their heart moves them to do but then isn't there still this kind of like market of interest of like how do, how do people get their eyes on it yeah and, and i think that's that's um it's something that's challenging now but it's it's a like it is the like the immaterial kind of part of the art world that while you know like it's like it's it is actually kind of also generally agreed that today in in like the New York centric kind of global contemporary art market that the best work does get support. Like that's, that's like, it's kind of a weird thing to factor into these, to these kinds of conversations. Cause it's like, it's actually really uncommon to find somebody who's making like super game changing kind of mind blowing art. That's not receiving that support. That's um, good to hear. Yeah. But, but, but well, it's, it's, it's good for like a second. And then you, then the next question is like, how do you make good art? And that the answer to that question is with like lots of support, you know? And so, because yeah, like to this question of like or this idea that there's a lot of rich kids making art. Like there are, <laughs> it's very true, <laughs> and um, and it, even more than there are rich kids making art is that there are people in enormous amounts of debt making art, <laughs> and um, so the support structures that that an artist needs to to kind of produce like art that we consider like super good and that we could kind of visualize as like commanding um, you know the attention of historians or something like that. This is like uh, the conditions for that are pretty you know pretty unique and even in a, 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 a sort of post-capitalist future where art making was democratized and everybody could kind of get their fair share, there would still probably be a kind of like funneling down ultimately of like um, people who wanted to take it more seriously than somebody else. And at the end of it, you know, like, what does that look like? Like maybe that looks like somebody with a bunch of, there's actually, there's actually a great movie um, that I think about all the time called The Horse's Mouth. It stars Alec Guinness. It's from the, it's from, I think it's from the 60s. And he's supposed to play this sort of like visionary artist, British painter who like gets out of jail. And the, the, the movie starts with like him come, getting out of jail. And he's like this total degenerate, like, like uh, he's like a really bad kind of fraudster, but he like does all these like minor frauds to like fund his artistic practice. And at the end of the movie, there's like this big kind of kumbaya moment where like he has all these art students like help him make this like mural on this church that they're about to demolish. And they just finish the mural just in time before they demolish the church and then they demolish the church. And it's like really, I, I always think about that when I think of like the sort of future of art making because there's once you also decommodify art truly and say that we're not going to have the auction house kind of drive like you know creative decision making um then all kinds of like new and crazy and kind of fun ways to think about art making appears and we don't have to think of the museums as these sort of like vaults or whatever um but uh yeah it's if you're if you can see you can figure out how to watch that movie it's a great movie well that the horse's mouth yeah that also reminds me of this story about man ray that i really like when you know he was young and punk with his dada friends he made something called object to be destroyed oh you know cool this piece yeah i've heard people talk about this yeah. it's like a pendulum with a like an eye on the pendulum and um I don't remember the exact story, but I think like they smashed it with a hammer while it was exhibited or something like that. And so then years later, when Dada is like this 
totally accepted part of art history and all of this work is like no longer scandalous but like you know beloved uh, like it is today but i think this was probably in the the 50s or 60s or something he recreated object to be destroyed and exhibited it but without the the pretense of someone smashing it with a hammer and so some true believer of dada uh went and smashed it himself and that's based uh, the person was arrested and man ray was upset about it and so he responded by making hundreds of objects to be destroyed so no one could destroy all of them and also so he could you know exhibit it all around the world even these acts of transgression even if it's like built into the piece what makes you cutting edge in the art market and you're just gonna if you even if you succeed perfectly um and i think this is why like the situationists for example finally said like there's no point in making art anymore like we have to make revolution to make art possible yeah i think like there's a good like there's a good kind of idea in this man ray story um and this is something that the art world uh is very bad about um where you there's like it's kind of like it's kind of like la la land it's like it's like there is no there is like no real discourse kind of happening in the art world about about like uh like that would that would be sort of in place to address like that that kind of instance with what happened with that work like there's no mechan there's no like like man ray is never gonna like nobody is ever gonna like give like come around and like take points off of his like artist scorecard for like this this move you know um and the artists and and you know so the sort of power brokers in our world have really taken taken advantage of that like you can basically say about an art piece like whatever you want like and there's really no like even if it's like kind of a, a really wild claim like there's really no interrogation of those claims at all like um and so if this piece is if the sort of conceit of this piece was that it's like meant to be destroyed and like but then it clearly like you clearly didn't want it to be destroyed <laughs> like that like uh-huh. you, you can just kind of do that and, and and that's fine um and i think like uh in my like and where i've kind of gone with this understanding is it's sort of basically there's like this idea of art history and you know you look at art history and as an artist you try to like understand historical movements and like where ideas were coming from and 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 you want to learn about this stuff as an artist because you kind of like want to you know it informs your own work and and um you want to feel like you're kind of like a part of this developing conversation and if you were to study art history today um it's very difficult to get a real art history which i would say is like the study of the market and because this is what is you know, in 2022 has emerged as the most powerful kind of entity in determining um, what conversations are like worthwhile um, in in having in, in, in art. And, you know, art itself has very few of its own values. You know, like we can talk about creativity. We can talk about, um, uh, I, I don't know, like what's another art value, like beauty, pretty prettiness. Um, uh, you can talk about a lot of things, but really it's, it's a placeholder and like you deposit values into this thing. Right. And, um, uh, it doesn't have these like intrinsic ideas. And so is in, like where we're at now, is it basically like the values that are really, uh, that people want to see in art are the values of the people who kind of control the art ecosystem. And those are the same people who yeah, unfortunately control the world. <laughs> they sit on all the boards of the museums, they like run the banks and you know, so it's like, but this again is like only like when, if we're looking at that, like very highly visible kind of like top of the market, you know, which is what sort of like determines um, the rest of the conversations around it. What was I going to say? Oh yeah. I mean, people, humans have been making art since way, way, way before capitalism uh and it's served a lot of different functions throughout human history uh 
I'm yes. so like the the idea yeah, that, like that thick lady sculpture. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that mm-hmm. was before capitalism, I think. Yeah, what kind of yeah? Thick kaka. The Venus of Willendorf. You know they talked about that on Trillbillies, and Tanya was talking about it, and, but she couldn't remember the name, and like nobody knew what the fuck she was talking about. <laughs> you were right, Tanya. It's the Venus of Willendorf. She's thick, and we we like her. We like her a lot. Um, but yeah, it is like like. Do you think the idea of art as something uh, some, something that expresses some like deep individuality? of the artist is something that's uh maybe concurrent with the capitalist era or is that something that existed before and now it's being uh corrupted by the market what do you think what do you whoa, think about whoa, that dude. Little, little bong rip all right i lied uh, before yeah, I, gotta... I am a little bit high i've been <laughs> macro dosing cbd because my yeah. lady parts hurt wow um so the question is, do I think that the that the the sort of idea that art making is like this expression of indiv- of like a of like a, a person's like, you know your spirit, like your soul? And, okay, yeah, yeah. like because I feel like in the in the olden days, uh, people made art to like appease the gods or whatever, and uh, nowadays it's supposed to be like this. Uh, individualistic expression of self and i'm wondering is that uh is that neoliberal or not it might be might be a bit neoliberal i mean i think i think it's like i i I really i don't know i feel like um it's this is a hard point to untangle because it's like the question of like what is what is art for and what is it like versus like what does it do and like what why why do we have the ideas and the expectations of art that we have of it today i guess and like where do those come from um i think kind of yes i'm a sort of like yes to all i think that definitely artistic uh production and like is is like i i do kind of like believe in that sort of um you know real like unitarian sort of like idea of like self-expression and like you know that you can kind of like work out your your sort of soul questions and stuff like that in art making um and i think people historically uh did that um i think you can look at a lot of historical art and see that happening but i also think you can look at like a lot of historical things that aren't art and see that happening and i just sort of think that that's like why i um Yeah, I sort of like want to include more things, I guess, in that way of being um, and that way of like thinking about activities and like how we spend our time as, you know, kind of registering on our like as like, you know, parts of our uh, uh, journeys, so like individual journeys, you know, of like finding ourselves, And then, you know, just kind of like did, uh, you know, did art making that was like meant to to like communicate with the gods or something in like the Neolithic age or, or something like that. Was that like, not that, like, I don't, I'm not sure that was not that entirely, but it was well, like, what if we use the example of your painting? Here? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, sorry. You can't see this, Jamie. Maybe I can, um, what's the name of it? I can like send her a, the image. Oh yeah. It's called the children of Gaunt. No, just shoot me the NFT. I'll keep it safe for you. <laughs> no one's going to fudge no. these tokens. I'm not getting it. Oh, here we go. Yeah, there you go. Where are you? Where, right. where am I looking? I'm, I send them to you on Signal or on the chat? 
uh put it in the chat so um yeah here at woodbine we have we're we're very lucky to have this uh large painting what's the dimensions on this oh, thing is oh. this bad boy is uh 144 inches wide by 98 inches tall yeah i was gonna say 98 times 144 because uh, it's right here on the instagram description and it's um two figures wearing robes maybe like a kind of biblical robes carrying uh staffs and they've got their flock of goats around them they're standing by a lake with some mountains and clouds in the background and there's a lady lounging in the grass and i uh you know we were talking about putting the piece up here at woodbine and i didn't really understand much about it but i just knew it needed to go up because it's so weird and interesting and um I it's want the about space how to be a hanging bit. out with goats rules. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's definitely a part of it. But I, I want I, the space to be a little bit creepy. Like I wanted it to be, <laughs> I wanted to feel like a little bit that something culty was happening here, but not too much. You know, I don't want to scare people too much. Yeah. Medium. But you've been here, right, Jamie? Do you feel like there's like a little bit of cultiness, but it's not so much that people are going to be afraid? You know... I really haven't been paying much attention to the decor. I'm usually just trying to put the veggies in the fridge. Uh, you didn't even notice your I can. Uh, you, uh, sorry, you didn't notice Sorry it. about that. I, I'll take a I'll take a closer look next time. Just another paint. My like a just motel art to her. Yeah. Well, you know we can. Sure I didn't know. Buy. I didn't know that we had like some real ass artists uh, putting shit on the walls. I'll, yeah, I'll, this, I'll this, take I a mean, closer this painting look at is, it. Um, I'm also like really good at not seeing things, so uh, blame my ADD for that. Yeah, I was just really surprised that Woodbine could afford it. You know, I mean, um, very. <laughs> I'm joking. It was. Uh, I, I. It's on loan. It's on. It's on. It's on. It's, on, it's a gift. A it's a gift. Yeah. Uh, but so when you what what was the uh, idea going into this? Were you looking to uh, firm your neoliberal atomized individual self? Or were you trying to please some sort of God? Or what was the point of uh, making this thing? This is a great this is an excellent way to talk about these kinds of questions. It's always so much easier to talk about like what anybody means, like when you have a an example right. of the work. Um, and art, not just art. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this painting the way my practice works is is I kind of find ideas um, through uh, a sort of uh, cascading, I'd say, like research practice of like looking in different places for different sort of narratives and different um, images. Uh, and this is not an I did not find this image, but I found this story. This is a uh, uh, from Ursula K. Le Guin's Earthsea series. Is the oh, setting here? Hell yeah. Yeah, and it doesn't actually depict any scene that's described in those stories, but it depicts sort of like an imagined moment that um, I came up with after reading the the trilogy um, and the and the fourth book. I think there was also a fifth book that came out like uh, much later. But I've been told um, those books are good, and I should read them. So I'm going to try to do that as soon as I uh, you know go to rehab for my Twitter addiction. That's the one where everybody's genitals are always changing about. No, uh, oh, no, no, that's um, the left hand of darkness. <laughs> oh, okay. I ha- I have read most of that one. Uh, these are these are short books. Um, they they you will the, the you will find them actually in the young adult section of the bookstore in the young adult fantasy. Um, most of the time, but they're very simple. Um, they're but they're they're great. They and they're full of like kind of like great imagery, and um. So I wanted to 
so for this painting like wanted to make it's hard to, yeah because like there's another thing that goes into like when you're an artist like you're always kind of like thinking about uh where you're at in your practice and sort of like this kind of like journey that you're on and for me this a big part of this painting was the scale i really wanted to make big work and i didn't know whatever they wanted to make big work about and then i read those books and i was like this is like this is what i want to make big work about is like there's so much in that narrative that i felt like just kind of tapping it i could like um bring bring into the rest of the kind of conversations that i was interested in having about my work and so it kind of gets at like this moment where all the heroes have kind of like completed their journeys and they're they're basically retired and they just like live in in this village and like raise these goats um yeah i, I wanted to make a big comfy painting about the kind of life after the struggle you know and they're just waiting for someone to come in on a helicopter and pull them back in yeah yeah which actually happens in the in in the in like so like there's a there's a trilogy that was yeah and one of the characters from that so there's like there's a trilogy that that i think was like finished in the 70s or late or early 80s and then 16 years later there's a fourth book that gets written um and it is kind of like that exact situation it's like the sort of like band gets back together a little bit um you know, really Blues Brothers 2000 kind of deal. Uh, then there's a lot of other ideas. Like there's a lot of other things I wanted to try with this painting that I hadn't really done before. So like I, you know, as to speak to this, like how fun it is to hang out with goats. Like I, it's very fun to hang out with goats and I did hang out with goats for this painting. Um, like those goats were all live models. Oh my um, God, that that rules. Yeah. I got to do yeah. that. I, I feel like Sean and I both did this independently of one another recently where you go to like a farm and have the goat experience and it's pretty nice. Yeah, it's great. Except for this um, one goat, Marvin, that had butted me and most of the people on the tour, but I digress. Yeah, uh, and, and, and you know, in that same conversation, kind of goat trip i also got a bunch of my friends to wear these costumes and like we took a bunch of pictures and so i had wanted to do like a sort of larger production um but anyways this is all just like background on the image but as to does it express myself and to the big ideas of i feel like i feel like this painting is yeah it does i feel like it does capture a kind of like a like a moment that i really believed in this sort of like vision of of um of like a feeling of comfort and kind of like safety and but at the same time kind of like wonder i don't know that i sort of like do i do like want to hold that in um to who i am and i do think that like that's like if, there, if there's a way to sort of like have that feeling uh pers persist and to kind of grow as a person with that feeling like i do i do believe in that um now there's you know there's um oh yeah nice um now there's another kind of like question where um you know after the the painting is done and you're an artist you have to like do something next and very often what that means as an artist is kind of being like realizing all the problems and flaws of the last thing that you made and being like a, i want to totally do something different yeah not enough goats not enough goats yeah um so so there is a kind of like divorce that happens after at the end of a lot of like work or, or, or for some people bodies of work um and so, you know, it is, it can sometimes be a struggle to sort of recuperate like the, the sort of like what the real kind of moment was for me with that painting. But I think that's, that's kind of what it is. Okay. So, but when you're painting it, are you thinking, how is this going to further my career? Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Am I going to make a paycheck off this? I was not confident how that I was going to get paid gonna... for this painting. 
come up with the minimum wage to pay the people who are paying it for me. <laughs> Am I going to be? Yeah, they, 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 I, they, I don't pay. I don't pay. Uh, you pay your interns? Excuse me? Who pays their interns? No way. No, no, no interns in the Filio studio. Um, no assistance. What about in the how-to studio? No interns in the how Absolutely not. You think HBO has unpaid interns? No way. <laughs> I mean, I would hope um, not. They would never. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, when, this, when I made this painting, like I wanted to make a splash with it. And I, I did hope that like I would earn some visibility that would advance my career. Knowing sort of where I was in my career when I made it, like I never expected it, it, anybody to buy it. Like, you know, that there is not a market um, for massive paintings by like unknown artists. You know, like, it's not really like something that kind of happens or, or re- I say relatively unknown, you know, Um uh, and it did. I would say it, it did advance my career. I mean, like I, my, I have a show coming up in in April with the gallery, um, uh, and the, the you know the person who, who who runs this space like saw this painting, and so this is how this is nice. how the, sh- I, I, the show happened. Yeah. Wait, did they see it at Woodbine Space? No, they saw it at, at the gallery at a, a, a gallery called King's Leap. Um, mm. That was in Tribeca, but moved to Chinatown. Well, so shit. obviously, I um, I like it. <laughs> Thank you. So, obviously, the I think it's a good painting. Yeah, the, the artist can't like fully separate themselves from the the market or from like public taste, um, unless you want to be an outsider artist, in which case you could become very famous years after your death. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about like what the art market is, or like the art world is, and like what is it? What are these museums with? You know what? Like, why is the why are there these galas and so it's so like sort of from from the position that like no like how 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 kind of rudimentary of an explanation? Well, I mean, like they would like you to think that it's philanthropy that you know yeah, okay. these billionaires right. just love art and want to share it with the world. Um, yeah, but what is it really? Well, I mean, there, it's it's certainly not like well, it's like philanthropy isn't philanthropy even when it's philanthropy. So, um, in the question of like the museums and sort of like the art, their role in the art ecosystem and like what the art world is, um, very ba- very basically, like when you're talking about the art world, um, you're talking about a kind of like overlapping uh, little solar system of different fiefdoms of people and organizations, uh, dealers, collectors, artists. Um, and they all kind of like, there's no monolith, right? There's no kind of like singular authority as there had been, has been in, in the history of art. There has been, you know, kind of like um, uh, big institutions that sort of run the art world. Uh, but that doesn't exist anymore. Right now we have this sort of like free market idea. Um, and there's at the arguably at the top of um, what we're calling the art world are groups of people who uh, run the major museums and they sit on the boards that's that's in the hierarchical kind of organization of the mark of the of the the whole economy here and those people are wealthy financiers who are very often art collectors um, and they're the people who are the most active in the secondary art market and they're the people who are most actively um, uh, fundraising for art museums and most actively kind of buying trading and selling art like at that really high level um these are not people who would you know buy, buy my art i have not sold art to anybody like that i would happily do so if any of them wanted to buy my art but um uh, uh you know ha- happily is maybe like a, 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 a kind of a joke word there but like 
um they're, they they're they're very like they're considered like the sort of like movers and shakers or whatever of the art world and they're not doing philanthropy that's correct um and they're really not like in the sense that like this isn't just some you know, uh, thing that they like want to give back to society. Um, now what, it, what it, 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 that's not really true. And, you know, it's, I guess they're like, we're entering the realm of subjectivity here because on the other end, like they, they do like art. This is an important, I think, distinction. Like, like these, like there are plenty of other morbidly rich people who don't collect art, you know? So there is like this, at some point, um, these people generally kind of like understand that uh, this thing is worth their while. And that'll often be the thing that gets them in the door will often be like, you know, a very sincere, I think, attraction to, you know, maybe they were like, they wanted to be an artist and it didn't work out or, or they come from a family that has always like valued art or something like that. Uh, what do they, what, the, what do they end up doing as the sort of stewards of the art world? Um, they, it's, it's about, I mean, this, it's about power, and it's about the access to the overlapping uh, and kind of like, you know, um, coniferous networks of the ruling class and like those rooms that are very exclusive and like how uh, people like how they're kind of like endlessly competitive with each other. And like they need to like have different um, demarcations of like, we're, like, I guess, like we're, we're, we're in charge or something. And it, you know, goes to how they establish kind of like hegemonic control over the culture and like how they keep um, everybody in the general kind of like, you know, uh, politically paralyzed public, like, you know, enamored with them and it, it and, uh, how they keep people to have to hold, you know, how they hold the public's trust, basically, you know, like we uh you see our names on all these walls and the museums and uh because we, we give these to you out of the goodness of our heart and so you should trust us at least a little bit to like pick your elected officials right <laughs> you know i thought that was it was even more cynical than that though like it was a tax write-off plus just a way to park wealth sure yeah i mean that's I, in, so like like on the research end of of kind of like my uh, investigations into that the ta- that there is enormous financial incentives for uh, super rich people to get involved in the art world um tax write-offs is a huge one um i, I don't actually think that's the biggest one but it's a it's a huge one um, and especially if you are a collector yourself, like if you're if you're like a serious collector who's like really moving and selling art, like like you know multi million dollar works, like the the way that you can you know kind of like uh, reduce your tax burden uh, by donating to a museum is is like it's like a no brainer. Like there's no reason you you'd not do it. Um, the kind of like insider trading money parking thing, I think generally like if like it's kind of generally understood that like art is probably not the best investment. Like, you know, it's kind of like one of these things where like, yeah, when you're like super rich, like you do need, you kind of run out of things to buy. So it is like a wealth parking mechanism in a a big way, like similar to real estate or something. But I think the returns are like a lot more volatile. Um, So I think, you know, people, while like, while some of that may be going on, like it, I think, I think what I've arrived at is like the more, the more, I think like um, accurate kind of explanation for like why all this money gets involved at the top of the art world is really for this access to, to power really. And, you know, and, and this, this comes from just like spending a lot of time trying to figure out the answer to that question, you know, it's like, cause basically like if you're trying to organize against it and if you're trying to sort of like um, reap, like or sort of like get some control back, um, you know, or try to make the art world a more democratic place. Like you do sort of have to answer that question. Like, why are all these rich people here? Mm-hmm. Because in, in my view, I think that you can kind of, and I think a good strategy for getting power back is to sort of like uh, poison the well a little bit, right? Like, you know, um, make it 
unattractive for from a, the position of just like seeking power in a social sense. And this is what we saw happen actually, like with Warren Candor's at the Whitney Museum, you know, like um, the Sacklers too. And the Sacklers, exactly. Like they're ostensibly still getting all of their tax benefits and they're still getting all of their financial benefits for like owning a collection. Like none of that goes away. But the thing that does go away is like the the prestige and the access to power that like is provided by those institutions. So I think that definitely like what's played out um, in the, at least the kind of recent history of like art world activism is that uh, these institutions are extremely susceptible to kind of reputational damage. And um, can you sum up that campaign at the, was that the Whitney? Yeah. Yeah. This was, um, it's called the tear gas biennial. It was a, I think it was 2017, big, uh, important art show that happens at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York uh, every couple of years. Um, there was, uh, gosh, um, to sum it up, just a, a lot of like uh, outside advocacy, really like the, uh, this group called Decolonize This Place ended up getting involved. But the uh, the whole, actually the whole, it was an instance where a group of workers actually at the, the museum um, decided that they felt that this one board member who was the chair of the board at the time, Whitney Cant or uh, Warren Canders, his uh, business was not like compatible with the values of the museum. And he was manufacturing tear gas, among other things, body armor for police, stuff like that. Um, and they wrote a letter that uh, leaked calling for um, him to resign and for this to be some kind of accountability within the museum. Nothing happened. Outside groups got involved. Decon is this place was like, you know, a, a huge factor in agitating during that uh, that whole time. And then this uh, exhibition opens and eventually there's, um, you know, protests happening at it, like on a very regular basis. And uh, some artists threatened to withdraw their work. And ultimately, um, Warren Candor's resigns in what was probably like the biggest kind of like, you know, success of that kind of agitation at, at, at an art museum or at an art institution. Like you haven't really like there's not a lot of other kind of similar examples. Um, and it was very organized, too. You know, I, I actually wrote an article about that for the late commune magazine about the sort of background of uh, how how it all came together and like you know sort of like what went into creating that moment um and afterwards it was great um because you had this thing where all of the uh you know board members of various museums were chiming in and kind of giving it a little their comments on different reports that came out afterwards like who's next like this is terrible like now we're all you know kind of like vulnerable and yeah and like that 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 to me was very exciting um also the um the protest of the sackler family was pretty cool yes led by nan golden's group an artist herself nan golden who i did not know this beforehand but apparently she almost suffered an overdose after being prescribed oxycontin and they were uh they showed up they did a protest against the sackler family which was about to get um I think a pretty, uh, pretty advantageous settlement, uh, all things considered. And uh, they were like, yeah. no, we're going to hold you motherfuckers accountable for all of the misery that you've caused with the opioid epidemic. But ultimately, the issue isn't just like there's some bad people on the boards of this museum Correct. or on the walls, but it's the fact that there is a board. Yes. Right. Yes. But, uh, but is the catch 22 is without all that money, without all those rich people, would there be these museums? Yeah, I mean, so there's two, and there's that's that is that is the catch twenty two, and there's two, two answers to that question. Um, the one is there is there is uh, models, obviously it's like far from America, but like publicly funded museums are like a big, you know, the way that the, most of the rest of the world works. Um, 
So, you know, we would, it's kind of like, I, that's not a super compelling argument to say delete the board because like, you know, uh, we don't, it doesn't seem very politically um, viable in the near term future that uh, political will would exist in America to kind of radically increase, you know, cultural funding or something. Um, uh, but then the other end of it is, and this is research um, that, I, that I, I'm kind of proud of and, and I did a lot of um into museum endowments. And that's something uh, I wrote about last year for Hyperallergic Magazine. Um, and the rub is that these museum endowments are enormous. And, you know, accidentally kind of what's happened is that these museum boards have sort of like, you know, they've kind of played themselves a little bit and that they don't, they fundraise themselves into a position where they're no, they're, they're actually no longer really necessary. Like, um, many like for the very large museums so if like the whitney moma the Met, these big new york institutions that have these multiple hundred thousand dollar endowments um they don't you know those those endowments um already provide the lion's share of the budgets annually and over time could stand to you know replace the uh, the amount of like money that actually goes to the budget, like from ongoing fundraising. So like right now, most of the fundraising that happens at a museum goes to enlarging the endowment. Very little of it actually just gets spent. Um, and the research that I did was on how well that money has been invested. And what I actually f- was able to figure out was that, you know, particularly at the Whitney's, the example that I looked at is that the, the their endowment is very poorly invested um, and it underperforms uh, pretty significantly um, like standard index funds and just regular kind of like best practices, sort of like mom and pop, like boomer style investing of just like parking your money in an index fund and like having some government bonds by about, it trails by about two or 3% um, on average. And that would, you know, that has ended up, ended up being like many, almost $200 million, like from like when I started looking at the data 20 years ago and today. And what happens is that that kind of loss compounds and that you can imagine uh, the it's very it's very easy to see the endowments uh, reallocated and kind of reinvested it, it away from the way that they currently are and into something more sustainable like that. And then you're just, you know, you're like 10, 20 years away from the endowments outperforming fundraising on themselves. So there is like a sort of like extremely bureaucratic answer to your, to your question of like, how do you run the museums without the rich people? And it's like, well, the rich people have already given enough money basically that we don't need them anymore. Um, but you're still like running into the question of political will and like, you know, how do you get these people to leave? Um, and I think, you know, uh, my, my hope with that research on the, the endowment funds poor performance was, you know, to just kind of supply ammunition to like this argument that they're really doing a bad job running cultural life. And they're doing a like in every step of the way, like they do it, they do a bad job financially. They do a bad job intellectually. They do a bad job spiritually, emotionally, however you want to rub it, you know, they're doing, they're doing it poorly. Um, and, uh, you know, hopefully, um, you know, you know, I, I actually don't know what the hopefully there is, but that's the truth. <laughs> well, hopefully the movement to democratize art. Yeah. That is NFT will continue <laughs> to spread. God. And one day 
anyone can monetize and make a, a living off their own art. And, yeah, and there's a there's there's kind of a, there's an idea that I something that popped into my head when I was just kind of rambling there for a second. But with alongside NFTs, one one of the challenges as somebody who's you know organizing in the art world, um, one of the challenges today is that the art world is doing very well as a marketplace, and that means that artists are selling a lot of work right now. So artists, in a very general sense, are happy, um, which is unusual. The art the art the, <laughs> the art marketplace is yeah, it's really popping off. Um, and that has a lot to do with just COVID concentration of wealth. Rich people have more money to spend. You know, everybody, I think probably listeners to this podcast are aware that like the rich got richer during COVID, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. And so, so there's more money to go around for the artists who are, you know, you, you get their money from the rich, um, in a, in, most generally speaking. And then, you know, and that was kind of like compounded a little bit by two things like the NFTs and the Web3, and then mm-hmm. also just like the, uh, so many artists that I that I've talked to, and, I, and, and like part of the organizing where I, I talked to like uh, you know a hundred, I probably spoke with like a hundred artists last year, like in the context of this organizing work. And um, uh, one of the things that was just like totally astounded by was like how many artists really saw the uh, uh, the expanded unemployment benefits as this like huge force in their practices and like this big kind of like positive thing that came in and just basically handed out a residency. You know, um, everybody, lots of artists that I know in New York basically got to have a free year and a half of their studio practice. And this has never happened before. So this benefits the art market like pretty majorly because it's like now the art market is back, all the rich are richer and all these artists got like a free year and a half to produce. And so there's like this inventory, like ready to go. Um, and so, and then add to that NFTs. And uh, now we're in this kind of situation where it's actually, it's like, it's like, it's like, it's like funny. It's like kind of hard. It's a little harder to like get artists to complain, <laughs> but artists, you know, it's like, which is what I want to do. You know, I'm always trying to get artists to complain, but it's, it's a little harder today. I mean, good for them. Uh, it does make me mad that uh, it seems like only bad things are contributing to artists' happiness and well-being, right? Like, oh, the yeah. rich got richer and we had a global fucking pandemic. Wouldn't that be great if those things didn't need to happen for artists to live a I, decent yeah, life? Yeah. But how are we going to have Clark Filio's blue period? That's right. <laughs> yeah, I got to get really sad. Oh, well, I mean, I feel like the world will provide reasons for that. Not to be a doomer. Well, what do you think about us um, ending the episode here? And then we'll do a bonus that if you're a patron of the show, like a, a patron of the arts of old. Yeah. And you should be. You should, everybody should be a patron right, of the show. Become a patron. And we will, Clark will tell you how to uh, <laughs> become rich with NFTs. Uh, Hell yeah. Oh. You know how to do that, right? Yeah, I literally have so much fucking money from NFTs. You guys literally uh-huh. are gonna have to get paid. Like, you need to be a patron right now if you want to know how to get as much money as I have. I no have cap. So much he will. Mo- I have give no- you an NFT. I have listening no to. cap. So much money, you and we're an gonna NFT. we're gonna be talking about my collaboration you get an with, NFT. with. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, um, I'm going to be launching the Wookie coin with uh, Dookie Hauser and Buster McNollins uh, at the end of this show uh, with with Gigapurse. I mean, it sounds stupid enough to be an NFT. <laughs> yeah. While we're doing plugs, I should remind everyone that I have a new podcast called Everybody Loves Communism, and it's about history and theory. So if oh, I, wanna, I didn't even know about that. Oh, well, check it out. It's at bands.fm slash everybody loves communism 
or patreon.com slash everybody loves communism or just type that into wherever you get your podcasts and you could learn a little history and a little bit of theory with me and my buddy Jorge. So yeah, check it out. Cool. All right. Talk to you in the bonus. See you behind the paywall. Yeah.